Good morning, beloved. While you are standing, if you can grab your Bible this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, picking up in verse 7, the Word of God reads, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to, to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Here ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, infallible, and inerrant word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you also for the blessing of your spirit who illumines your word to us. And as we turn our attention now to the study of your word, we ask, oh God, to help us. Help us to focus our attention and to hear from you through your word. Father, I ask that you would help me to articulate your truth in a manner that is clear and accurate and that you help all these who are listening to be expository listeners. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, church. Well, I'm guessing that many of you who are roughly 30 years and above have probably at one time in your life walked into a bowling alley and have bowled a bit. And I say 30 and above because bowling used to be a community event. Before the cultural push for individuality, people would hang out in a bowling alley for community. But as we speak of and start off with bowling, bowling in it as a, of itself is an interesting sport. Uh, the goal, as you know, is to knock down pins, ideally to do that at the same time. But lurking to the left and to the right of those pins are those troublesome things called gutters. And gutters bring no reward at all. If your ball veers off the lane too far to the left or too far to the right, the result is gutter ball. And many of you that have been have had that experience before. And much like those gutters that line the bowling lane, the Christian life is flanked with gutters. With the gospel at the center of the lane, there is a gutter to one side that is defined by legalism and a gutter on the other side defined by anti antinomianism. There, there's a gutter on one side defined by cheap grace and a gutter on the other side defined by self-righteousness. There's also a gutter on one side defined by the thought that there's no need to know God more, and there's a gutter on the other side about those who think just gaining more knowledge about God is good just for the sake of knowledge. But each gutter is dangerous for our faith. We must keep our eyes focused on the gospel. 
we must never waver from the fact that we are needy recipients of the grace of God. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 called for the elders of the Ephesian church. I want to read to you part of what he said when he gathered them together. In Acts chapter 20, verses 26 and 27, Paul said, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Paul gave those leaders a warning to make sure they are caring for the flock of God. He said he did not shrink back from declaring to them the full counsel of God. Later on in our study, Lord willing, as we get to chapter 13 of Hebrews, we'll read the, the writer of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. As one of the elders of this church, one who will give an account for your souls, for watching over your souls, I must also declare the full counsel of God. It is the full counsel of God that the Holy Spirit will use to convict and to encourage and to sanctify you. It is the whole counsel of God that will keep you focused on things above, not things on earth. And it is the whole counsel of God that will warn you against unbelief, which happens to be the title of this sermon this morning. It is a warning against unbelief. And as we look at our passage in Hebrews this morning of this warning, which is included in the full counsel of God that goes out to God's people, it is for our good and ultimately for God's glory. For those of you who like points and like to write them down, point number one is today. Point number two is today. Point number three is today. All right, if you like to write, I could put more on those. Point number one today is heed the warning from God. And we'll see that in verses seven and eight. Point two is also today. And it's heed the warning from one another. And we'll see that in verses 12 through 14. And lastly, the third point today, heed the warning from history. And we'll see that in verses 8 through 11 and 15 through 19. So are you ready? Looking to our text this morning, we begin in verse 7 with our first point today, heed the warning from God. And we see in verse 7, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The author begins this section by pointing to Psalm 95. But I want you to notice before we get there how he speaks about Scripture. He, he doesn't refer to the human instrument that God used to record it. Instead, he declares the author of Scripture as the Holy Spirit. We recall back to the opening of this letter, the opening verse, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Hebrews. We read, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And so from the very beginning of this letter, he acknowledges human instrumentation, but he makes clear the fact of, that the author is divine. There is divine authorship of Scripture. And in our text this morning, he begins in this seventh verse of chapter 3 by saying, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... I like what John MacArthur says here. John MacArthur says about this, Here is the one, here's one of the clearest testimonies in Scripture to its own divine inspiration. The author says, Here the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is speaking. And here we have an introduction to this quotation from Psalm 95. And it should cause us to stop 
and to reflect for a moment, to reflect on the Scripture. Because the Bible is not a bunch of random thoughts about what certain men believed about God. The Bible is God's Word delivered via the Holy Spirit to human writers to record it. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So since the Bible has divine authorship, it has abiding relevance and authority. How many times do you hear someone say, oh, that, that's old, it's no longer relevant. It is the Word of God. And so it has abiding relevance and authority. It's not some antiquated book of stories from the past. It is the living Word of God. Later we will study in Hebrews chapter 4 where the author writes in Hebrews 4 verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is the word of God. And since God is unchanging, so is his word. And thus, the author of Hebrew writes, the Holy Spirit says. This is in the present tense. The Holy Spirit is still speaking through the Scripture. This is why the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 as being still relevant in the lives of his hearers, though it was roughly a thousand years after it was recorded. And it's still relevant to us thousands of years later. It's noteworthy that Psalm 95 begins as a call to worship the Lord. We read it in our opening reading this morning, but hold your place there. I want you to look at that opening of Psalm 95 once again. If you flip back over to Psalm 95, I know you found it once already. Psalm 95, you'll see that opening as a call to worship. We read, and as the author of Hebrews tells us, the Holy Spirit says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Now, now right there, that point in the psalm, the psalm takes a sudden shift from praise to a warning against unbelief. Unbelief that is demonstrated by disobedience to God. And this is what we have in our text this morning. We have that part of the psalm, that latter half, verses 7 through 11, recorded for us, quoted for us in Hebrews chapter 3. And so flip back to Hebrews. And you'll see it right there in our text this morning. Again, reading that quote from Psalm 95, I'll read where it's quoted in Hebrews, starting at the latter half of verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, Psalm 95 verses 7 and 8 are referenced three times in our short little passage this morning. It's in verses 7 and 8, it's in verse 13, and it's in verse 15. 
It's also referenced later in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. Well, what was the intention of that? Why would the author continue to, to, to put that in there? What was the direction of the Holy Spirit to the hearers at that time? Well, every Jew most likely had this passage committed to memory because it was the call to worship every Sabbath evening in the synagogue that would start with these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 to grab his audience's attention. Remember, originally written to Jewish believers who were tempted to go back to Judaism because of all the hardships that they had endured from their Christian faith. And so the call to worship goes out. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This word today, it is a word of urgency. It means now. It means in the very present, not later, not tomorrow. The message must be acted upon now. The Holy Spirit here says, if you hear his voice. The question is, how is God speaking? Well, in text, he's speaking through his word. We're not waiting for an audible voice from heaven. God speaks through his word. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. At the beginning of the gospel of Mark, we read in chapter 1, beginning in verse 14, that when Jesus came, he came proclaiming the gospel. And he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And it says, he passed along the Sea of Galilee and he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is Jesus' ministry. He goes out proclaiming the gospel. And he says, you need to repent. Repent. It is a 180 turn. It means if you're heading this way, doing what is right in your own eyes, you turn back to God and his ways. But he says you also must believe the gospel. You trust wholeheartedly in the finished work of Christ that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But thirdly, he said, it's not just that. He says, now follow Jesus. Turn and follow Jesus with your life. I just quoted it, but I want to give you the whole context of what Jesus said in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, I just quoted verse 16. I'll, I'll read it again, but with what Jesus said afterward as well. In John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son. And this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, I read that to you because as we get into our text and we understand what is being said in our text this morning, there are some people who say, if I just had another sign from God, then I would believe. And as we will look at the Israelites, they saw so much of the mighty hand of God, and yet there was still unbelief. Jesus said, because they love darkness more than light. That is not just them, it's still with many of us today. That the reason many don't come to the light is because of the love of sin. Jesus came to save sinners just like us. Listen to these declarations that Jesus made about himself. 
Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts. This word here, harden, it means to cause to be unyielding in resisting information. It means to to cause to be stubborn and obstinate, especially with regard to the truth. The Holy Spirit says, do not harden your hearts. In the context of what is being said here in chapter 3, it means do not disobey the voice of God and act in accordance with your own desires. So we are not to harden our hearts about the truths about Christ. And perhaps you are here this morning and the Holy Spirit has confirmed to you the truth about Christ. You must turn to him now. The word says, today. It is not something you decide later or do later. It is to turn by his grace to Christ. That you're not to delay in submitting yourself to his lordship and believing in his finished work upon the cross. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There is no other way to be saved. There is no other way to be forgiven. No other way to be reconciled to a holy God. Jesus came to save sinners. Today is the day of salvation. You are to turn to him now, to trust in him now, to submit to him now, to follow him now. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. We're to heed this warning from God. As we continue in our text this morning, we'll turn to our second point today. Heed the warning from one another. Don't worry, we will come back to 8 through 11 in point number 3. But we're going to look at starting in verse 12. If you would... Go down to verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 3. We read, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The the author transitions now, and he he begins by saying, take care. These words, take care, means watch carefully. Be diligent to watch over your own heart. And we see why we must be careful, why we must be diligent. He says, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Evil here means morally worthless. It means loving the things of darkness more than the things of light. And it's evidenced by disobedience to God. You see this word unbelieving in verse 12. The same word appears again as unbelief in verse 19. It means a lack of belief. It means unfaithfulness. This unbelief is demonstrated 
by a willingness to commit oneself, an unwillingness, excuse me, an unwillingness to commit oneself to another or respond positively to the other's words or actions. It's demonstrated by a lack of commitment to a relationship or a pledge. Obviously, you could put that in terms of following Christ. There is a commitment to follow by His grace and for His glory. The author here in this text in in verses 8, 10, 12, and 15 refers to the heart. And the heart is the center and the source of the whole inner life. It includes the thinking and the feeling and the volition. And our own hearts naturally drive us towards being disobedient to God. I'm going to say that again. Our own hearts naturally drive us in disobedience to God. Jeremiah 17, 9, we understand the heart a little better. As we see there, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Well, isn't that interesting what God says about our heart? Because that is not what we hear people telling us all the time, that you are just to follow your heart. I mean, how many times do we hear someone say, I'm following my heart? Which means, biblically, what the Holy Spirit says, that they are deceiving themselves, that they are yielding themselves to the deceitfulness of their own hearts. I'm following my heart. The believer is not to follow their heart. The believer is to follow God. Which means that believers obey God and not their own desires. And this is why as a Christian, we are instructed to put off our old self and to put on our new self. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24 We read, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Beloved, we need to be so careful to guard our hearts. There is a battle going on. The world is looking to take us captive by its ideologies and by its philosophies. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We must listen to our Lord. We see this warning in verse 12. Looking again at Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Fall away here means to, to rebel against, to reject the authority of another. In the context of this verse here, it means to apostatize, to turn away from God due to unbelief. And since our hearts are deceitful and they cannot be trusted, God gives us his word to help us discern what is good and what is right. But even in knowing his word, we can still deceive ourselves and justify disobeying his word. And this is one reason we see in this text this morning that God gifts us with Christian community. God uses other believers in our lives for our good. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This this Greek word here for exhort, it literally means to come alongside another to call out. To, To biblically exhort someone is to urge strongly, it's to appeal to them, to encourage them to live in obedience to God. 
By the way, this is a command and not a suggestion. It is not a command just for the leaders of the church. It is a command for every believer in Christ. We are told here that we are to exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today. So I'm going to ask you, how often is that? <laughs> Good answer. It means it's not a one-time thing. It's regular. It's ongoing. And it's for the purpose that we don't become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Well, if we're to do this with one another, it tells us another thing about Christianity. That Christianity is not an individual endeavor. Later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, we read, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What does that mean? We must be active participants in the Christian community which means it requires our physical presence. We need to gather together. That we are the church when we gather together. These walls around us are not the church. The people of God are the church as they gather together. In the Old Testament, we see they're referred to as the congregation of the Lord. That word congregation comes from the same Greek word that we get church Ecclesia, same word. You know, I hear people say some, th some things about, oh, I sat on my couch and I did church while watching online. Well, what they did is they watched, but they did not participate. The people of God are commanded to gather together so they might exhort one another daily or regularly, routinely, habitually. Why? Because we need constant encouragement in the faith. Do we not, beloved? To have our eyes constantly redirected to Christ. Because when we walk out of the community of the saints, immediately what comes upon us? Temptation of every sort. And in that temptation, we lose sight of the gospel. So God gifts us with one another that we would come together and stir one another up to love and good works. We need others to come alongside us and to continually point us to Jesus. Why? Because our hearts are deceitful and they will lead us astray. A.W. Pink commented here, he said, Sin deceives. It makes men called darkness light Bitter, sweet, bondage, liberty. We must commit our lives be lived out in the community of faith. It is with other believers that we fulfill all that is said throughout the New Testament of loving one another, bearing with one another's burdens, forgiving one another. It's as we live as a community in the faith. We must gather together. And we must be committed together. Those who isolate themselves are disobeying God's command and putting themselves in danger of hardening their hearts by the deceitfulness of sin. As genuine believers, watching carefully over our own, uh, our own hearts, we welcome the exhortation of others. Because we know we need it. We all have blind spots. Every single one of us have weaknesses. As those who are purchased by the blood of Christ and indwelt with His Spirit, we now long to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Thus, we not only allow other believers to exhort us, we welcome that exhortation. We desire that encouragement that we might live in a manner that is holy, a manner that is worthy of the cross of Christ. We desire the encouragement to help us fix our eyes upon Jesus 
and to follow him faithfully. And in receiving exhortation from another brother or sister, we humbly acknowledge that our own hearts are deceitful and we welcome the help from other believers. And so we are commanded to exhort one another daily. But Jesus also gives us some instruction here. He tells us to first take the log out of our own eyes so that we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's eye or your sister's eye. He does not just say, just take the log out of your eye. He says, do that so that you can go help your brother or your sister. Do it so you could see clearly to go to them and exhort them, to encourage them in the faith. We are to exhort one another. We're to be watchful over one another's hearts, to guard one another, to come alongside one another. John Calvin said this, he says, As by nature we are prone to fall into evil, we have need of various helps to help us in the fear of God. Unless our faith is repeatedly encouraged, it lies dormant. Unless it is warmed, it grows cold. Unless it is aroused, it gets numb. Then he refers to the writer of Hebrews, and he says, The writer of Hebrews, therefore, wishes them to stimulate one another by mutual encouragement so that Satan will not steal into their hearts and by his falsehoods lead them away from God. End quote. What a great quote by Calvin. Another one from Simon Kistemaker, he said, quote, Believers have a corporate and an individual responsibility to care for the spiritual well-being of their fellow men. They must consider this responsibility a holy obligation and exhibit utter faithfulness, end quote. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have this responsibility to care for one another. We must actively engage one another to fulfill that. You know, so, so many times people think, well, that's the pastor's job or the elder's job or the deacon's job. But we see clearly in Scripture, it is a one another. Here, there, there, here, you, there, everywhere. It's all of us unto one another. So then I ask you, do you have relationships within this church where people know you well? Not know about you, not know that you like, you know, basketball or golf or actually still bowl on a bowling team, um, but they know you. They know your struggles. They know your weaknesses. That there's somebody you can go to and you can confess sin to. Do you have those relationships within the church? Those who know your struggles, your weaknesses, your blind spots. And I'll say this, if not, then the word we read over and over in this text is today. It is today. It is not tomorrow. It is not for later. But it's today that you begin to pursue these type of relationships within the church. If you are showing up for service and singing some songs, hearing a sermon, but then splitting immediately after the service, you're unable to do what Scripture has commanded you in all the one another's. You must remain to stir up love and good works in one another. It is the only way to obey this command to exhort one another daily. But beloved, you must seek these relationships. And these relationships are within the church. Don't, don't come and say, well, I have this person at work or wherever else. This is the coveted community of believers at this church that we are commanded to live out the scriptures together. So do you have those relationships? Because if you do not, you must seek them out. This is a command of Scripture that others might know you well and that you might know them well. Because without this ongoing exhortation, you are leaving yourself open to being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Richard Phillips expounds on the deceitfulness of sin. I want to, write, I want to read what he writes. It's a little lengthy, so get it. Comfortable for a second, because what he talks about is not very comfortable. Richard Phillips says this. He says, Consider the case of a man who is tempted to leave his wife and children for another woman. 
The sin seems so alluring. She is so much more wonderful than the plain old wife he has grown tired of. And she admires him so. She plays to his ego where his wife only nags him. She would be better, or she would be better for him despite the broken taboos. He will be better off and happier with the adulteress. People will understand. They'll get over it. His children will ultimately be glad for him. Phillips continues. It is all, however, a great deceit. It will not be more wonderful, for the problem with his marriage is his own heart, and he will soon get tired of his new lover as well. She admires him now, but will think less of him when he loses his job, his reputation, his money, and his self-respect. His children will not get over it, but will bear scars and brokenness all the days of their lives. Sin says it will be better, and he will be happy, but it is deceit. He is stepping forward into misery and ruin, bringing disgrace upon himself, and if he is a Christian, scandal upon the church and even the name of Jesus Christ. Sin advertises pleasure, but delivers pain, end quote. Do we understand the seriousness of sin? And that our own hearts lead us right down into it. And our hearts are quick to justify sin, to excuse sin, to minimize sin. But God says today you are to have relationships within the church where you are known by others and you know them as well, where you can exhort one another regularly. And what, what is the outcome of such exhortation? It's one of God's means of grace to cause us to persevere in the faith. Look at verse 14. We read in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 3, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Exhortation keeps us focused on Christ. Think about how much time we are given just in the context of gathering on a Sunday and our natural thought life goes to the things of the world. We speak of things that are temporary, not of things that are eternal. Where We're given this little bit of time to come to encourage each other in the faith, but we're so quick to talk about everything else. Exhortation reminds us to cling to the gospel. It keeps our hearts from becoming hardened. It fuels our obedience to God. It steers us away from unbelief. Exhortation is one of the means that God uses in our lives to persevere to the end. And so we must heed the warning from one another. Lastly, in our last point this morning, today we are to heed the warning from history. And we'll go back into the text back at the latter half of verse 7. Read through verse 11, and we'll jump down to the latter half of the text in 15 through 19. So let's look at it together. Going back to the latter half of verse 7 of chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Skip down to verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, those whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. I want you to notice the repetition here of quoting Psalm 95. We see it in verse 7, beginning in verse 7, we see again in verse 15. 
the author of Hebrews is pointing to events in history that Christians are to learn from, that we must heed the warning from history. Specifically recorded in here refers to some events in Exodus chapter 17. If you were with us last week, we jumped through a lot of chapters in Exodus, and we'll look at Exodus 17 once again. But there's also Numbers 14 and, and what is quoted here, Psalm 95. So looking back to last week, we, we turn to Exodus 17, which if you want, we'll read some verses from there. You're free to turn there again. Exodus chapter 17, where God had delivered the Israelites from Egypt, and then he tested God, or they tested God, and they complained when they had no water in the wilderness. So again, in Exodus chapter 17, Beginning in verse 2, we read, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And then in that text, Moses turns to the Lord and seeks the Lord. And then we see the Lord's response in verse 6. In Exodus 17, verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And so the, these, these terms here that were given, Massa and Meribah, mean testing and rebellion. And these two words here, find we find them in Hebrews 3.8. They're in reference to God's displeasure with the disobedience of his people that he refers to as unbelieving. They have unbelieving hearts. And twice we see in our text the reference to Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. For those of you that know your Old Testament fairly well and know about the Exodus... The Israelites saw God work in many signs and wonders. They witnessed the ten plagues on Egypt. And as the Egyptian army chased them, they crossed the Red Sea as God split the sea. How many times have you seen that? And they went across. And as the Egyptian army chased them, God released that as he would his wrath upon his enemies. But throughout the 40 years in the wilderness, they tried the patience of God. Almost immediately after they came out of Egypt, they began to complain. In a chapter previous to 17, right back in 16, we read in verses 2 and 3 of Exodus 16, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that he, we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread in the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. These people began complaining over and over again about their circumstances. Now I will tell you this, and I will admit to it myself, it is easier to see my sin in somebody else than it is to see in myself. And it's easy for us to wag our fingers at the Israelites and say, what is wrong with you guys? But not to look in the mirror and see that's us. These people, the Israelites, saw God provide water from a rock. They saw him provide manna from heaven. They even saw him provide quail in abundance. They saw the pillar of fire at night that protected them in the desert cold. And they saw the cloud during the day that protected them from the fierce sun. And all the while in the wilderness, their clothes and shoes did not wear out. How does that happen? The Lord faithfully cared for them during those 40 years. Yet they grumbled and they complained over and over again, revealing their unbelief. We, we see in verses 10 and 17, if you turn back to Hebrews, if you're in Exodus right now, turn back to Hebrews. Chapter 3, and we see in verses 10 and 17, they provoked God. Provoked means to become very angry and offended. 
It was in Numbers chapter 13 that God sent one of the scouts out from each of the tribes to spy out the promised land in preparation for his people's entry. And out of those 12, as many of you remember, 10 of them came back with great fear. And they encouraged God's people not to go into the land as God had commanded them. But there were two who did say to go, Joshua and Caleb. They came back and they pleaded with the people. Remember, they are the minority voice. Ten others are pleading, do not go. And they come back and say, in Numbers 14, 8 and 9, we read, they say, if the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. By the way, their brothers did not receive this from them. Instead, they picked up stones and wanted to kill them. The people of God refused to obey God and to go into the promised land. And so I'm going to read through some portions of Numbers 14, which if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to read Numbers, the entire chapter for homework, Numbers 14. If you'd like to turn there, you can, but I'm going to start reading from Numbers 14, verse 11, for some of what's going on here in our text. Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. Then down in verse 22 and 23 of that same chapter, Numbers 14, we read, None of the men who have seen my glory, God said, and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers, and none of those who despise me shall see it. Later on in the same chapter, verses 28 through 30, we read, God says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. I mean, think about it. After all that God did, all that the Israelites witnessed the hand of God, the indictment against them is that they truly do not know God. <laughs> they didn't know him. I mean, how could that be? They witnessed so much, and yet they did not believe? We see clearly that a lack of evidence is not the cause for unbelief. The Israelites had more than enough evidence to believe God. Evidence was not the issue. The hardness of their hearts was the issue. You know, Winston Churchill once famously said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Philip Schaff goes on talking about history and says, quote, history is and must ever continue to be next to God's word, the richest foundation of wisdom and sweet guide to all successful practical activity. History. We are given this passage so that we might learn, that we would heed the warning from history. Now we read in Jude verse 5, he writes, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. They saw the works. They saw the wonders. And yet they did not believe. This morning for our second public reading, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In context of what we've been learning this morning, I want you to turn there once again. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, we read the first 13 verses, 1 through 13 in there. Um, 
beginning of verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by certain serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Beloved, as believers in Jesus Christ, we must heed the warning from history. We must thoroughly examine ourselves and one another to see whether there be in any of us a sinful, unbelieving heart. And as we see in the Israelites, a complaining spirit is always an indicator of unbelief. Now, if that hurt, that is what the Bible says. A complaining spirit is an indicator of unbelief. If we complain in our circumstances, it reflects our beliefs or our unbelief about God. Our complaints display our doubt about His wisdom and His goodness. Our grumblings display our doubt about His power to lead and to protect us. And in addition, unbelief is always demonstrated by our willful disobedience to God. Unbelief is always demonstrated by our willful disobedience to God. When our thoughts and our words are in line with, I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, we are acting out of unbelief. Disobedience is the fruit of unbelief. And as we see from the example that is recorded for us, God's wrath is poured out on unbelief. Beloved, sin is deceitful. It hardens the heart and leads to falling away. Do not fall into that trap. Today, heed the warning that is from God. Today, heed the warning from one another. And today, heed the warning from history. Before I close this in prayer, let's bow our heads and take a quiet moment to reflect on what we have learned this morning. Thank you for your love demonstrated by sending Jesus to die in our place. Father, may we heed your warning that if we hear Christ's voice, his words spoken through scripture that we do not harden our hearts. May your grace be evidenced in us by us obediently following Jesus. Father, we are an imperfect people with a perfect Savior. May it be through the, our fellow brothers and sisters that we are encouraged in the faith that we're able to see blind spots and sin in our life, that we can come to you and confess that sin and can confess it to one another. And by your grace, we can repent from that sin. Father, help us to actively pursue relationships where ongoing exhortation can take place. May we be known well enough by others in this church that they're able to actively encourage us in the faith. And may we be so familiar with them that we can actively encourage them in the faith. Father, we do not want to follow the example of the Israelites, but we want to learn from their failures. 
rather than complaining about our circumstances, may we run to you for peace and strength to endure through all difficulties. Rather than grumbling about our situation, may we come to you with thankfulness for all that you have given us in your Son. Help us, O God, to carefully watch over our hearts and the hearts of our brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name we pray.